right. Welcome back to another amazing episode of UAP Studies Podcast. I am Louis Borges. Joining me as always, my illustrious co-host, Jason Gilmet. How are you, buddy? Hey, I'm, I'm doing good. This is a good Sunday. We have a great guest today. Absolutely. We say that a lot and it's because it's true a lot. Yeah. Uh, our guest today is very recognizable figure. He spent decades, uh, you know, giving his hard work and blood, sweat and tears into what he uh, finds to be interesting and what drives him. Uh, he is the founding curator of the Joseph Campbell Archives. Uh, he's a PhD. He's appeared on very popular television shows such as Ancient Aliens and The Unexplained with William Shatner. So without further ado, we want to extend a very warm welcome to our guest, Jonathan Young. Louis, Jason, great to be here. I, I'm very impressed with the list of guests you have had. Listen to the uh, Jacques Vallée episode and you had a therapist from Colorado, Schlimmer, I think his name was. Yes, yeah. Very interesting angles. Yeah, yeah. we're not just a nuts and bolts UFO show, so to speak. Um, you know, this is a, a phenomenon that covers many, many different areas and, you know, specialties. And it seems the more into it you get and the more credible people you speak to, we now are getting into the realm of like consciousness and quantum theory and everything else. And you look at it, you know, is this something that's new? Not really, because if you compare to the ancient stories and, you know, every uh, every ancient civilization has always looked to the heavens for some type of inspiration or and they felt it important enough to create rituals around that and pass that on to future generations. And to, even to this day, you know, we have a birth ritual, we have a death ritual, there's a marriage ritual. So ceremony is very integral to us. And uh, we wanted to have somebody on who's a psychologist, somebody who might offer a different um uh, mental aspect of this and maybe give our uh, viewers some information they weren't otherwise thinking of. And uh, so like we, like I said, we like to cover the full spectrum. Right, right. Well, if you, if you go out, get away from light pollution and go out and look at the night sky, you, you'll have a religious experience. Right. It's extraordinary. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, I live in a big city with a lot of light, so I see only a little bit of it, but uh, uh, we can see why the myths had to do with sky visitors. Definitely. Definitely. So what got you interested in this whole field uh, and, and wanting to be a psychologist in the first place? Uh, oh, problems. I went to therapy and it helped. So I said that that looks like a cool thing to do. So I trained. Um, but it's it's very much about unseen worlds. Uh, I'm, I'm within the schools of thought that are called depth psychology. People think of Freud and Jung. This is a, the unconscious. Not, not all psychologists are interested in that, but that's the area that I work in. So it's all about hidden worlds and the influence of things we cannot see. And, and uh, it's exciting. It's, it's uh, an adventure. I also grew up very religious, fundamentalist. I went to a church-related college, very evangelical background. And, and that's about the angels and about our connection to the creator and the divine. I've moved on in my life philosophy, my religious and spiritual life, which is still strong, is more uh, interfaith and comparative. And, you know, it, I've come away from it. But that early influence is very strong. I'm very grateful for it, that there's more to life than what we see. There's more to life than getting through the day. And there are some mysteries worth studying. So there it is. I'm a seeker like, like you guys, like a lot of people uh, who pay attention to your wonderful series that want to know more. And, and that, that's how I got to this. Um, working with Joseph Campbell came out of my uh, scholarly life as a professor, the uh, graduate institute that I uh, work at in Santa Barbara, the Pacifica Graduate Institute, which is the leading place to study Carl Jung's uh, ideas in, for clinical use. Uh, 
managed to land the Joseph Campbell papers. Uh, Joseph Campbell was a close friend of the graduate program, came and spoke often, and I worked with him when he came and did seminars and things like that. So the the archive came to this small university, and uh, because I knew Joseph Campbell, the family selected me. I got to be the curator, work with his widow and, and others that had been very close to his circle, and uh, the papers and collection artifacts and all uh, are now in Santa Barbara, where where I live and where the uh, the Graduate Institute is located. And it was a big project. It, was, it really had a huge impact on me. But actually, Joseph Campbell himself had already had this influence, which a lot of people will attest to who studied with him or read his works, saw him on television with Bill Moyers on public broadcasting, which was a very big series for a long time. Um, he studied comparative mythology, which is unusual in an academic career because usually there are specialists. A person will study the Middle East or the study a Japanese historical uh, uh, artifacts and things, but he wanted to see what they had in common. And that resonated with my earlier religious background. I could see that all the images that I had studied in Bible college had multiple possible interpretations. I learned that from Joseph Campbell. And I had actually gone a little sour on religious matters, and he restored that for me. He gave me back a life of spirituality. And I think a lot of people who read his work saw a new way to, to study life's mysteries, to study the journey, which was a big thing for him, how we would go on an initiatory pattern and go through this process of transformation. So that's that's my, my story. Uh, the, the television work came out of my association with Joseph Campbell. The um, producers of Ancient Alien had done a really terrific two-hour special on the mythology of Star Wars. Uh, I think it was called Star Wars, The Legacy Revealed, and it was the first three films. And they had a number of experts and a number of public figures. I remember they had Tom Brokaw and uh, uh, some interesting people just giving their, um, uh, Stephen Colbert was on there, just giving their opinion of the big uh, personal effect that Star Wars had on them. And of course, Star Wars is profoundly mythic. When Lucas was putting together the first screenplay, he it wasn't quite working. He had the general idea, but he didn't really have a story pattern that worked. And a friend said, have you ever, ever read Joseph Campbell? And he said, well, yeah, in college. Well, go read that again, because he's got this model that might help you with your story. And it did. He copied it directly, step by step. And that is why Star Wars was such a huge success. And he was forever grateful to uh, Joseph Campbell, called him my Yoda. Uh, and when we were setting up the collection, the archives, he supported us, was on our board of advisors. I got to meet him. I got to work with him. So we had some problems with audio. We had a lot of audio recordings of Joseph Campbell speaking in church halls and not very good quality. And we said, this is valuable material. We want to bring books out from this. But George, we can barely hear it. He says, let my guys work on this. So we, I, I was up at Skywalker Ranch and the audio people there were able to bring pristine quality out of really murky audio. Oh, wow. And a lot of that was released on, on CD and stuff. And we brought books out of that. So the connection between Joseph Campbell and uh, George Lucas was very strong. And I got to comment on, in fact, they gave me the last word. They, they actually let me sort of narrate the whole I was a, because we were following Campbell's stages and I would articulate how each section of the movie followed that stage of discovery within the hero's journey. And it was a very good program. And then 
couple of years later, they got this idea of doing a program about um, alien visitation with Eric Van Donegan and Giorgio Tsoupoulos. And they said, oh, well, get get the uh, the mythic perspective in here. Get Jonathan on that program, too. And that was 12 years ago. And there have been all I can't keep track of the topics, but they've, they've come at everything from this perspective. It's just fascinating. And nobody expected it to have this kind of run. We thought, you know, interesting history channel. We don't, we didn't know that if the channel would uh, stay interested or the public would stay interested. It grows and grows and grows. In fact, we can put it on a 10 year old rerun and get a great rating because the, the fascination with this material is very, very strong. And when you're doing these uh, sort of uh, productions that goes on, like, are, are you given that free, free range to state your opinion or do they find that they edit that quite a bit within the editing room? Oh, I, I, yes. I say a lot more on the psychological significance than they want. Right. I always say it. And the, 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 uh, the interviewer, the cameraman, everything, Oh, there you go. again. And, and now and then uh, uh, some little bit of what I say will catch their interest and they'll put it in, but they're, they're mostly interested in, the details of ancient civilization. And frankly, I have to look that all up. I, I'm not really a historian. I'm a psychologist, but I, I can, I understand it. And I understand it from working with Campbell, the significance and the, what, how ritual opens doors to invisible dimensions and things like that. I have the general idea and I, I study up on the particular uh, topic at hand. And, and I could tell they like it because they put me on the screen a fair amount. There's quite a few of us and we know each other. Right. Um, we, because uh, they, they put on these uh, conventions, Alien Con, great fun. And, and then we, we hang out then and, and can compare notes. I, I go to some of the others. Um, there's one called Contact in the Desert yes. here in California. And it, it's fascinating to compare notes with people, experiencers. I'm not an experiencer, but I, I talk to them. And I have a clinical practice as a psychologist. And some people come to work with me because of the program. They know I will have respect right. for right. their experience and they've they've seen things they've, they've had contact over years and things and i do have respect i think these are profoundly important moments i've heard you mention on other shows that you're one of the only guy on the show that's somewhat of a skeptic when it comes to the whole alien theory you prefer to look at it more in terms of uh, um, angels or some other type of maybe misunderstood phenomenon so give us your perspective on you know uh, with with again with ancient aliens being the topic ancient civilizations, the, the artifacts they've left behind, the importance that they put on those areas, even so much so that if there was two nations at war, they wouldn't simply, you know, destroy the, the landmark and move on. They would usually rebuild their own. So, you know, what are your thoughts on the whole ancient mysticism of the world and, and how that kind of relates to the topic of ufology? Well, it, um, secularism is a fairly new idea. You go back a thousand years, Everybody's a believer. Now, you, you believe some slightly different stories in Japan versus France, but uh, the sense of the sacred and the sense of visitation that we're dealing with entities beyond our own skin, that's a given. So the idea that it might not be, that's, that's in human history, that's a relatively new idea. Now, I do think there's something like, there's some kind of contact going on. The debate is, what is it? We are in touch with something beyond our understanding. Now, it could be angels. It could be uh, visitors from the future. Uh, some people think it's a government conspiracy that think there are people that do know what's going on. They're just not telling us. I, I personally don't go that, down that road. So we have debates when we get together at these conventions. 
I, I remember one, Eric Von Donegan was on the, on the platform and the topic was Atlantis. And I said, Atlantis is important. It could represent a place in the heart that is our highest yearning for something better. And I, I'm going on very poetically. And Eric Van Donegan says, it's not a place in the heart. It's an actual place. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I said, Eric, you know, it could be both at the same time. So that's where I go. Fascinated with it. Think it's important. I I, I checked out pretty early on uh, spam in the can. I, I do not think a spacecraft is coming from another galaxy to visit us. Um, there might be other ways to travel to, through time and space. So, uh, okay, that's that's in broad terms. We'll, we'll we'll follow that thread throughout our conversation because I've got a lot to say on what it might be, my own speculations. The Greeks had a language for it. Um, in Plato, there's the idea of the daimonic, D-A-I-M-O-N, daimon. This is not exactly an angel, but it's more like an angel than like something human. It is an in-between character, energy, identity, personality. So in-between, a kind of a go-between. And what between what? Between the human and the sacred, between us and the gods. There are couriers, and, and you go through different uh, cultures, and they have different names. Uh, if you are uh, in the Middle East, uh, the, the, the jinn, or what we call genie. Yeah. This is, okay, we're in touch with something that's beyond human, but it's not a god. It's something else. It's another category. I think visitors, um, UAP, ET, all this falls in this category, and you have different variations on artists. When they say I'm stuck in my novel, um, I'm not. I'm not getting on with my muses right now. They're not giving me anything. They have a whole vocabulary of dealing with something beyond themselves. They don't usually talk about you know Jesus didn't give me a page yesterday. They they don't blame it on the gods, but they they, they focus on the connection. How do I connect with something beyond my understanding? Right. So I think this entire UAP. Um, conversation is in that intermediate realm and it is mystical and um confusing it will do things we can't that don't make sense in terms of physics well it's not really bound by physics it's really in a, in some dimension of its own so that's my angle i think so, it, it adds complexity to those big questions you know like who am i why am i here what does this all mean where am i going and then you throw in uh, ancient stories of visitors and craft and even current ones it definitely makes it uh, a lot harder to, to palate right and to really try to get your teeth into well or you can think of it as abundance you got a lot to yeah. to draw yeah. on some of my clients uh, have had visitation, profound visitation over a period of years, often unusual forms, kind of a, a silvery, you know, kind of like somebody's wearing silver lame, but they're not. It's their actual color and things like that. And um, mostly very positive, kind of like, a, a, you know, a vision of the Holy Mother or something that religious people talk about where there's a real blessing that this thing happened. And they are not sure whether it was a, a thing that really happened or a dream. And my point is, hey, a dream is a thing that really happens. Um, and it's clearly from beyond yourself. This is like a, a, a middle-aged woman tells me that this young male figure in shiny silver visits her often. I'm thinking, you're a, you're a, a, a lucky seeker. That, that's a blessing. That's a fabulous thing. 
Um, what do you get out of it? And we let's let's not debate whether it's real or not. Let's go with it. Something good is happening. There's two um, c- scenarios when it comes down to alien abduction. It's either good or it's a negative one. It's either they come here to talk or they come here to do something um, physically, medically to the entity. Uh, what I mention a lot is having talked to people that have been abducted is that every single time they're on the ship, there is a room specifically designed for a human to lay down on and medical devices to come out of the walls and stuff like that to do experiments on people. And so that's a common thread is that most of these ships have these things for, um, you know, medical exams for us. Has that been something that has been throughout history, as far as you know, like, you know, medical exams on people, or is it mostly just a positive, you know, experience with entities of somewhere else? Um, They're not all positive. The, the abduction scenario goes all the way back. Um, It was a very big thing when Europeans came to the Americas, the natives would abduct people. Now, a few of them actually happened. But the 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 uh, game of telephone, where these stories would travel over to another area, and a person you could even you could even tell there might be a scrap of language from one area that would could that couldn't have happened over here because that language is from way over there. Right. So it's the story that traveled, but it's a fascination when encountering something mysterious. We have this fantasy of abduction. Right. So I'm a psychologist. I'm thinking, oh well. Clearly, contact with something we do not understand frightens us. So we fear harm. Now, I warned you that my, my, my interest, one of my big interests is in sci-fi movies. Right. It's a film about UAP. Because they, I think they depict our various fantasies. And so we have the, the, the dominating, invading, uh, torturing kind of uh, monster movies, horror movies, like the Alien series, Alien, Aliens, and all those. And then we have the kindly visitor, helpful, almost fairy godmother stories like E.T. and other sort of stories for young people and things like that. Well, they reflect our range of emotional reactions to mystery. Is it going to hurt me or is it going to help me? And sometimes in one of the good stories, there's a shift. And we realize, oh, well, they were going to hurt us when we rolled out all the guns and, and threatened to, to you know, blow up their spacecraft. But once we stand down, actually, they just want to chat. So we realize in, in, this, in the screenplay, and this is a fairly common trope in, in sci-fi films, ah, oh, it's all about how we manage our own fears. Right. And we also are afraid of like, you know, similarities to what happened with Cortez and, you know, uh, the Incas and stuff like that. Just afraid that there's going to be a takeover at some point. So it reflects a lot of our own human uh, fears and own human natures as well. We, we project that upon, you know, if there's an alien entity, if it's a ghost, it's always meaning harm in the sense of like wanting to make contact but at the same time with its own intent. And I, I've, yeah. I find that a theme that re- reoccurs a lot within Hollywood movies. It's always our own behaviors that we project upon aliens, right? And let me just pick up on, on the reference to Cortez. Most of the people in the discussion are, are, are part of Cortez's tribe. That is, it's our own aggression that we're afraid of. Right. Yeah, we, right. if, if we had all the power and could fool the, the natives, 
what would we do? Would we torture them, take slaves and grab all their gold? That's what our ancestors did. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what I'm afraid of for space exploration with humans. If we come across, you know, a lesser species than us, are we going to be as uh, equally compassionate towards them as, you know, some of these abductees have said that these entities are really compassionate. We mentioned it many times, whenever they take somebody, they don't launch them out of the airlocks and say, well, we don't need that anymore. They replace people. And you know, from what I understand from some of these abductions are even tucked back into bed, which to me shows compassion, shows some sort of level of, uh, of love or at least wanting to take care of it, right? Um, I just I, I just tend to be an optimist. I, I, my, my guess is something good will come of this. It is always scary to encounter something really strange. And this is really, we need to underscore again and again, this is beyond our understanding. We're, we're in a matrix-like situation here, right. like the film series Matrix. What we're dealing with is so far beyond our grasp. And uh, the other one that I, I like is more recent is, is, is Arrival, yes. that the language yeah. system they're using it, well, I mean, the the movie was unrealistic because one of us, now a, a genius professor, but still one of us actually figures out a way to communicate. The likelihood of that is really small. It's a movie. So it's, you know, we needed to accomplish that in two hours. But boy, if we if we get formal contact that is that, that we're able to engage in a collective way, not just the isolated visits, but really get into the conversation. It's going to be a job to figure out how to communicate. And speaking of that technology difference, like what do you think about some of these ancient ruins? Do you think that they were us in the past and we just lost some of that technology or the, the scale of how to do it? Or do you believe, you know, like the Sphinx or the Great Pyramids doesn't seem to line up with the type of tools they had at the time? And I mean, people have explained, yeah, you could use rollers and this and that. But if you look at some of the other ruins around the world, like Baalbek or whatever, they have many, yeah. many, you know, stones that are way larger than anything, even in Egypt, yeah. hundreds of tons. So, like, what are yeah. your thoughts? Do you think that's us? Well, yeah. some- I, I'm stumped by Baalbek. I've been there and the, 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 some of those stone slabs are, are just Insane. enormous. We, we would have a very hard time moving them now. And they didn't put them on the ground. They put them in the middle of the structure. You know, if you wanted yeah. to go for easy, you'd build with bricks like we do nowadays. Why do you need monolithic stones that are 600 tons? Uh, that said, uh, uh, there's something in science and intellectual history called nowism, where we assume that that what we do now is the pinnacle. There, there are a lot of aspects to it. The ancient Egyptians had good math and they had time. The entire culture, everyone in the place was totally devoted. We say it was done by slaves. No, they were willing volunteers. They wanted to do this for religious reasons. They were willing to take their their off time, and being agricultural, there were blocks of off time, and they would come and and work voluntarily and, and, and make a small dent in this huge project. Well, if you can mobilize everyone and the entire resources of a really brilliant and rich civilization. You can do stuff. You can do amazing stuff. So I have, I think it's a little disrespectful to our ancestors to say, well, they couldn't have done this without computers. Well, with patience, I I actually think they could have. Yeah. And brilliant people, because I mean, at the time it was facing true North uh, when uh, the North was there. I mean, obviously the, uh, what is it? The uh, pole is moving or something like that. The electrical magnet. Yeah. But um, yeah, it was pointing true north. I mean, that dedication to be able to say every brick was measured 
to make sure that it was accurate. Uh, that is dedication. And even we we're talking with Louis uh, not that long ago, we were mentioning how people didn't live that long back in the days. I mean, like 24 was the average lifespan for people. Yeah. So to devote yeah. a, a big chunk of your life towards something like that, uh, that shows great dedication. And yeah, still not no proof that it was slaves or anything like that that built them. It shows compassion and, and wanting to make a great monument, right? So yeah, you're right. Well, what, you know, what is our, what is our God? What we do with our best life and what we do, what we do is try to survive. We need, we need uh, food. We need shelter. We need, you know, we, we, once you manage that, what do you do with the rest? Well, you devote it to your art or your beliefs or your God. And, and, and there was no debate then there was one great cause. Everybody, everybody was on board. Um, so it, yeah, it, it was an awesome thing. That said, there are still huge mysteries. Well, even from my position, which is a, a bit of a, a discounting of the of some of the ideas, uh, the, still we are wondering how they did it. And, and a lot is lost. This is an in- interesting aspect of intellectual history is how much gets lost, right. how right. much advances. The progress is not linear. It's not one step up a ladder after another. A lot of stepping off to the side, a lot of totally losing a good idea because it became politically incorrect somehow, or somebody somebody else was a better salesman, so they sold they sold some bunk that was a bad idea, but we followed it for a few hundred years, and then we realized, wait a second, this doesn't work. What was that other idea we used to have? Uh, so it, we're very sloppy, right? And and yeah. and this yeah. is a, this is what's fascinating in history is to go back looking for lost treasures. Because there, there are a lot of them. And even from an organic level, certain things just don't age well. You know, like you can't really carbon date stone. If you're looking for pottery around the Sphinx, well, if it's, you know, five or 10,000 years older than most scholars think it is, the likelihood of finding anything is slim to none. You know, eventually everything turns back into dust and uh, it doesn't always leave that uh, that historical signature. So to get correct information or for someone to say, no, the Sphinx is definitely this many years old, you don't know. And I think it was um, uh, Robert Schock that said that it looks like water erosion around the feet, not wind damage. And if it's water erosion, it's way older than they uh, they ever thought, you know, so. The, the more yeah. scientific we get and the better instrumentation we have, we can do better quantitative, you know, testing. And it's like, whoa, this is even crazier than we initially thought. Now, also in this, these, these artifacts are all kinds of carvings and evidence that there were visitations. Yes. That the gods came and were among them. Well, now, what's that all about? And that, that we, we get into that in the Ancient Aliens uh, TV program often, this idea that uh, different cultures had visitations often from the skies, sometimes in craft of some kind. Maybe they depicted it in some place, something culturally appropriate. So you have a flying chariot or something that they could understand. But basically, they're, they're dealing with something they, they have a hard time grasping. Okay, sentient beings of some kind, advanced uh, intelligence comes up from the sky and interacts with us, often leaving some kind of blessing. Now and then they're sort of terrifying dragon figures or something, but more often than not, okay, whatever that is, we want it. <laughs> we, we want to study that to see anything we can do to facilitate that we're interested in and, and try to get past our religious prejudices that if, if it's never been mentioned in our Bible, therefore it can't be possible. Hell with that. I want to look at everybody's Bible, everybody's That's scripture right. and tradition. Yeah. 
anything that's happened, let's let's be open. There's so many similarities if you look at religions globally. Like whether you're a Christian, a Jew, a Muslim, the list goes on and on. To be good to your edicts and to your philosophies, you have to maintain that same level of character. No religion says murder is okay or theft or you know committing adultery or you know well, worshiping idols and that type of thing they all seem to have the same basic tenets if you're a good person then you're good to whatever religion you happen to believe in and it's almost like there were many messengers to reach all the different areas of the globe but fundamentally they all say the same thing well there's great common grounds there are some differences that are worth studying uh, differences in in ritual uh, which we which is really kind of a spiritual technology a way to open doors to greater consciousness and there and and uh, you know western mysticism has developed some fascinating things that uh, saint Teresa of avila has uh, I, uh, I kind of guided imagery, a way to go into unseen worlds. She called it interior castle. But there are techniques in Asia that we really never did stumble upon. So this is where comparative studies are really worth uh, our time. And we were uh, talking about wars as well earlier, saying how wars, usually when there's an invasion from another country and they're there for quite some time, tend to dissolve and destroy the old traditions or uh, oral histories of the people that are lived there. I'm thinking about the French and the English, how the French really shaped the English language now and destroyed a lot of the English history. Uh, it's That's what we were talking about earlier, how you know it's very easy to lose stuff from our past when there's constantly war, we destroy everything, there's looting, like Louis was mentioning earlier, uh, people come and, and, and loot old artifacts and sell them, so we lose a lot of the history right. from our past. How much does yeah, the, Tal the Taliban uh, blew up some uh, uh, ancient Buddhist statues because they're you know well Buddhism is wrong because they're 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 Islam. So uh, the, the 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 brutal the brutal tendency does smash, particularly imagery. There's a great fear during the the Inquisition. There was a smashing of a lot of statues. They called it idolatry, but imagery is the depiction of the imagination, right. and right. And that tends to scare the high priests and and the and the very very reactionary faithful because it has a kind of autonomy. The imagination doesn't always attend uh, religious school. It, it it sort of goes in its own directions. It's lively, and and that kind of scares people who like rules and order and and guilt. So there's always been this tension in pretty much every religious tradition. And now and then you'll have an upheaval and a lot of valuable images are lost. You see that in ancient Egyptian culture where I think it was Akhenaten and he's like scrubbed from almost every single hieroglyph he was ever in, either by his predecessor or whatever. But there's been certain people that have been noticeably removed from history and not just the name, but like you said, their likeness, that that visual which will always give you that same answer in the imagination. If it's if you're an enigma and if it's just a name, people kind of draw their own conclusion. But if it's a picture and a likeness, that seems to be a lot more intimidating to somebody that's trying to make you go away. So, so we, we go in with the scraps of broken things. We try to piece together sections that, that were missing, sometimes missing intentionally. And that, that's a particularly interesting story. What the Pharaoh probably, the error is not only move something toward a new religion, 
but that pulled power away from a very strong priestly caste. Yeah. And, and, and he didn't live that long. So as soon as he's gone, the old guard pulls back in, smashes all his images and, and restores the ancient wisdom. But really it's the wisdom that gave power to them, which is the, the topic of the play between religion and power. And religion as inspiration, as vision is very valuable and useful. Religion as oppressive power is really suspicious. And that comes back to what we were talking about earlier, about are these visitations kindly or not? Well, if you imagine they're trying to control us, that's not so friendly. If they've come to inspire us, it is. And how much of that is projection of our own control problems versus our own more kindly visions? Yeah, before the people that were the, the scholars or the shaman, they were the only literate people in the culture. So the heads of church and state were the only people that were giving you the news. And as somebody who doesn't know any better, it was very easy to use that for not so nice purposes. If you wanted to control people through fear of God's wrath, hey, you're also the, uh, the, the official representative of deity, and you can easily yeah. get that message across. A power corrupts, yeah. and there's a yeah. lot of power if you come and finagle a way to say you're speaking for God. Yep. I, I mentioned growing up fundamentalist evangelical. I'm fascinated with all the scandals, I, I, and I still watch the TV evangelists. First of all, they put on a good show, and I love the music. But but and then and then it's just a matter of time. I mean, the most recent was the president of Liberty University, Jerry Falwell Jr. You know, and and you know, and the fall from grace. It's it's Greek tragedy. Here is somebody in a very influential position. Um, I mean, doing something that he cares about and messes up, messes up with you know tawdry sexual escapades and things. You say, well, well, you get a big head. It's called grandiosity uh, or narcissism, and you don't think straight and and. One of the ways to look at it is that you have you have muddled the line between what is reasonable human activity and what really should belong to the gods. And that is the way the ancient Greeks and many other traditions saw it, that we need to be very careful when dealing with large ideas that we don't get too self-important as if it's about me. Yeah. Representing yeah. a religion is never about the preacher. Exactly. It's about the God. Exactly. It's about the teachings, the ethics, the all, all of that. And it, it gets scrambled often. If you fly too close to the sun, you'll melt your wings. If you try to be too godly, you're very yeah. quickly pointed out to be just another sinning human being, right? And the guys like Jimmy Swaggart and the Bakers and all the other televangelical tele, televangelists that have kind of fallen from grace. But when we do the same thing with celebrities too, right? We want to pump them up and put them on that podium. And as soon as they're up there, we want to shoot them off. So... Maybe that's just something within the human condition that we're just prone to doing this. Uh, um, I I, one of my day jobs is teaching professional ethics for mental health, uh, you know, psychologists and the like. And it's not a, it's not that powerful position. It's not like being a general or, or an extremely wealthy person. But in the life of that one patient at that one moment, there is a fair amount of influence. And it's terribly important that the professional, the doctor, stays very humble yeah. and yeah. represents a tradition and all the research is not that the doctor is so damn brilliant. It's that somebody did some studies that that he or she got to read and they, they, they it comes out their mouth because they're in the job right then. Celebrities are not gods. They're just good actors, singers, dancers, wh whatever. But we are, we're kind of short of gods these days in culture. So they get elevated a little beyond what is good for the human soul. Mm. Virtually every religion has a teaching about humility, 
Uh, the Quakers were particularly good at it, but uh, the, the Zen is good at it too. And uh, why is that necessary? Because if you're interested in the gods, you'll you'll lose your balance. You will. You'll get you'll get carried away with it. And you need a little mechanism, ritual activity that will bring you back to earth. Chop wood, carry water. In my life, it's it's clean out the cat box. You 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 know if you get a little too full of yourself. The cat, the stink of the cat box will bring me right back down to the instinctual level. Yeah. Well, Get speaking of ritual, bulldog. <laughs> speaking of ritual, getting you to zero, that's basically the ethos of the Buddhist religion. You know, going through that everyday ritualistic, trying to attain that nirvana similar to Buddha, you know, and uh, you take in other aspects of it, like maybe fasting or depriving yourself of certain things, meditating, you're trying to just quiet the mind and get to that zero. So it's not like that's our default setting. We have to do work to get to that. You know, we uh, it, it's an application of a ritual and a process that has come from before you. And we're capable of losing our footing. We're capable of getting off track. It's terribly important to remember that. Especially, we're talking large ideas here. We're talking about UAP. We're talking about visions and visitations, big, big stuff. Well, you can get a little wacky. You need to really be sober about, about what, what, what did I actually see? How much do I really know? Let me not embroider the story. Let me try to keep simple, keep in mind humanity right. here. It's, you know, and I often mention that about the alien abduction, it's either that it's a new mental illness that is out there that's rampant. It's either a lie that everybody's contributing to, or it's actually happening. Okay, let me take that one off. Sure. Uh, <laughs> um, that's that's uh, polarizing thinking. Okay. That's, something is either this or that. And in my humble, seldom humble opinion, it is very rarely that simple. Okay. Um, almost everything is some mingling, like my argument with Von Daniken. It can be both things at the same time. And then it gets much more complicated. And then when, once, you, once you put it that way, it's, much, it's a lot more work. Okay. So I'm stating an absolute when I shouldn't be, right? Right. Kind that, of, that's okay. the problem gotcha. with that. Yeah. Okay. Um, uh, and that's usually put forward by somebody who's enthusiastic and wants to argue that it's that is true. I would rather, you know, to use an old legal term, I would like to stipulate. Let's agree that something's true. Something big is happening, and not debate that point. Like that. And get into the mud, which is what the heck is it? What what do we got here? And and my uh, my sad report is I think we might have several things happening at the same time. And first of all, uh, you know, interested in older cultures. These are the leprechauns. These are the Menehuni in Hawaii. These are the devas. The little people have been with us for a long time, a lot longer than, than flying saucer stories or anything from the skies. What the heck? And, and we get into that a little bit in the ancient aliens television programs and things. There are all these stories. I'm particularly interested in, in genie and the jinn. The, these these intermediate characters in the Middle Eastern traditions who sometimes could be dangerous. You had to treat them right. They, they were powerful, but they could do things for you. And we have, you know, the pop, I, I love jokes. And there's lots of jokes about somebody who flies a, a, a lamp and dusts it off and a genie comes out. And then you have the, the quandary. And they're, they're funny because you, the, in the joke, you always mess it up. You know, you don't answer the three, you don't use the three questions wisely because they're, they're little moral tales about not getting too greedy because it's going to mess you up, right. you know. And not to fully um, trust those things either. You, the genie might seem like he's your friend, but you could all he could be leading you down a path of what you think is good for you and then be careful what you ask for. 
Yeah. It's kind of like yeah. the movie Bedazzled. If you guys ever seen that with um, uh, Brandon Fraser, uh, he keeps wishing for different wishes and the wishes are always I, yeah, up. He, yeah. He, he wants, he becomes a narco trafficker one time, but, but he, but he can speak Spanish. Yeah. He can't yeah. speak English anymore. He wanted to be rich yeah. and powerful. So she made him this uh, Colombian drug Lord with like this yeah, massive yeah, yeah. nose that does cocaine. It's pretty funny. Right, right. I, I recommend that movie for sure. But, you know, the cliche, careful what you wish for. That's right. Yeah. But, you know, so as we go into these topics, I mean, it's fascinating. It's fascinating, but it's it's powerful stuff. Um, I, I don't think it's insanity. I go to these conferences. I look around. Uh, they contact in the desert or Alien Con or these various things. Um, they don't seem like crazy people to me. And I'm a professional in this field. It seems like an average bunch of you know, if you walk down a, the main street of your town, it, that's who's there. Yeah. Regular people uh, who have maybe seen something or a lot of them are just fascinated or, or the wife has seen something. But, you know, I, I'm coming along because pretty interesting stuff. Yeah, we, we yearn for something beyond ordinary understanding. We yearn for transcendence. It's what draws people to religion. It's also what draws people to, to dangerous sports, to try to push the edge a little bit. Is it um, possible that ufology can become a religion? That it becomes... A, I, think, I, I think it is a religion. Yeah, yeah. and, and, and it, it, within scholarly circles, there's a, 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 an area called new religious traditions. And it, it essentially, in a new religion, there are no gods. There are new there are new realities, okay. Because okay. A, a god already is calling it religious, and and actually, it takes a while before a religion realizes it is one. It's it's just it's just new reports of something. Joseph Campbell thought that the first religious impulse was probably in Siberia because we can see how the stories seem to migrate westward. So it's probably in Siberia, in a, in the what we call the shamanistic tradition. Some medicine man some siberian shaman with his beard and his furs comes out of his cave and tells a story of uh, some wondrous contact well he probably had a dream we don't know because he didn't call it a dream because people didn't think of dreams as something different from me it just well i this happened well yeah it was oh yeah it was during the dark hours and then this other thing happened and he tells a hunting story and it, it doesn't discriminate one from the other as being more real they're both real stories but the one that happened in the night hours, the dark hours, had, had something come down from the sky, a flying caribou or something like that. So we have these reports, and they're just true. And then later, maybe our neighbor says, well, that's, that's, you're talking about your God. And then, then it gets that kind of language to it. So something new is happening. Some new image of the extraordinary. And what's interesting about UAP is that it tends to weave in modern technology. The other religions around here, Islam, Christianity, Judaism, Zen, the various things we have to choose from, tend to have an oldish quality. They, they, the stories have people in old-fashioned clothing and stuff like that, so they, it gets a little dusty. Well, let's heck, heck with that. We'll have technology, not only technology that's up to speed with what we actually have, but beyond that. It's technology beyond what we know. Right. Okay, that gets a whole modern thing. So that seems more real for now. So yeah, I do think that the whole UAP is is a new religion. And since I think religion is a positive event in human history, uh, that's a good thing. Okay. 
it's a means to explain the unexplained. And I think that's what religion, its primary function is, you know, again, how do you answer those big questions of life? You create a system that you can tell stories, symbolism, all the rest. And uh, by going through that initiative, right, eventually you get sort of a bit of an understanding of things as well as we know it, but it also kind of caters to the brain wanting to compartmentalize everything and make sense of everything and not have any or too many unknowns. We don't like to know that we well, don't know. It, well, it's a paradox because religion does explain a lot. That helps. It also has a whole system for acknowledging there is a body of information beyond our grasp, Yeah, whether yeah. it's about God and heaven and life and death and afterlife and all that, but we do not understand. Now, we have our little theories, but we know they're just our little guesses that whatever it really is, is more than that. I come back to the Matrix movies. Whatever this other thing is, it's really different and it's way more than I guessed. In fact, a lot of my guesses are wrong. And so there's this humbling quality of coming back to the altar, back to prayer, back to our studies, back to our research. Okay, let's assume we don't get it. How could this be wildly different than all of our guesses up to this point? And that, that's, that's the advancement of science, advancement of knowledge. But that's also a very spiritual stance to be in. With our investment in science and um, technologies, do you think that kills the religious aspect of, of ourselves? Like, does it make us not depend so much on the gods? Because basically we become the gods of the past, right? We can cure diseases. Uh, we can help blind. We can help the deaf hear. Like, we've become almost what we used to worship. Is that change in the Western world um, because of technology? Are we less prone to religious? And now, because of that, we have ufology that kicked in, and now we're sort of st stuck on this alien um, or entities from other uh, dimensions because it's technologically more advanced and it fits more the narrative that we're at right now? Well, there's a shift in language. So we're using more technical language. Um, I think religion is very hearty and we'll find a way to reformulate itself because we need it. Okay. Because we need, well, both sides of, that, that Louis and I were just uh, discussing, both some explanations and some acknowledgement of mystery. We need both sides of that, and we'll find a way to, to do that. Um, I, I do think that it's um, a difficult transition because a lot of people like kind of like the old way we did it. It's comforting, it's familiar, it's the way I learned when I was three and four and five, so therefore it has a kind of patina of truth just for having on a personal level been around and just historically been around for a long time. In the sociology of religion, they talk about how religion, religious authority grows. It grows through a time machine. That is, somebody tells a story and says, yeah, I think God might have a long beard. And then their children says, God has a long beard. And then their children says, God has a long beard. How do you know? Oh, it is just true. It's true. But actually, it was just great-grandfather's guess. Right. And, and the guess part gets lost in time, and it gets more and more concrete. Well, it gets more and more certain to the point where it's smug. It's like our God is a white guy in white robes with a white beard, and that's that, and your God isn't true because he isn't, doesn't look like that. Well, are you sure? Oh, absolutely. It's always been so. It's the absolute truth. But these people, you know, they're wrong. They're they're all going to go to hell or something because they've got you know. This, this we have to have a revolution from time to time and clear out some of this dust, and and try to come back stupid, so innocent, open, uh, receptive to maybe a, another way of looking at it. And frankly, 
whatever, all of our interpretations are guesswork based on our own culture, based on some familiar image that we are applying to something new. The gods are probably not going to look at all like human beings. I come back to the film Arrival. They're probably going to be, what was it, heptopods or something? They're looking like a squid. weird octopi or squid or something. Yeah, uh, and, and that's just a movie guess, but at least it's weird. And and they're, okay, we're not going to understand them, and, and they're, they're going to use an atmosphere we can't use. And we're, we're Okay, there, get humble again. Start from scratch. Yeah. I think it's dangerous anytime man tries to speak for God, especially a lot of scripture was written hundreds of years after the person in the story. Um, so it, it's almost like organized religion and the politics therein kind of give God, you know, G-O-D a bad name. You know, it's again, you get that depiction of a white man with a beard, throwing lightning bolts at people, condemning them who yet are his creatures that he supposedly loved and created and knows nothing about you know, negativity or evil or whatever. So I think the story of God we've written makes his work perplexing. You know, he's either the one and omnipotent and cannot be defined or it isn't. And I think the more that we get stuck on the dots and the I's and the T's and the paper, we're missing the forest because there's too many trees in the way, you know? Oh, the, the lightning bolt, that, that, that part is particularly cool though. I, it is we, cool. we actually, yeah. we do trip out on that on, on the ancient aliens sometimes that, that, even in these rather dusty stories, there are clues to possible technology uh, that that could have been a missile or, or a rocket ship or, or, or a spacecraft of some kind. And we, we, we see these possibilities and we, you can see how people of limited technology would interpret it in their way. They knew about lightning. They've seen that. Yeah. So, okay, this yeah. thing, this flash yeah. is, is lightning. Yeah. So and some of them, it's not that much of a stretch. Like if you look at the Vedas and the ancient Eastern uh, East Indian text, they're like they drew pictures of people in craft flying around. So some Asian yeah. cultures, they drew a dragon because it was a fire breathing flying snake thing. The only thing their brains could really wrap around was maybe that's a dragon. But in some other yeah. ancient cultures, it's a lot more specific. Like it was working right. craft with creatures or people inside having a right. war in the sky shooting yeah, with, with 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 propulsion that sure looks yeah. a lot like jet or, or rocket yeah the vimanas is what they were yeah, called Vimanas, yeah. The, yeah the the uh dragons um uh, are a symbol for renewal uh the snakes because any snake creature sh sheds its skin and a dragon is a mythologized snake that also flies so we have the bridging of the earth actually the most of the uh, Japanese uh, snake gods start out as water gods. So they're water dragons, sea dragons. And you see the location of Japan surrounded by ocean. So a lot of their mythology comes up out of the, out of the sea. But you have a bridging of the unseen below and then Middle Earth where we can see what's going on. And then the mysteries above. You have a, a, a system going on there. But I'm very interested in the renewal theme. And that is one thing that religion tends to do for us culturally and individually is Give us the prospect of redemption, the prospect of restoration, trans transformation into something new. Something. Learning is actually hard, and human progress is wrenching. People get hurt, idols get smashed, certainties get questioned, and this is going on. So if we have a, an emerging religion, which is my opinion, um, how would we be wise about this set of tenets, this set of ideas, these, these stories? Well, one thing is try to learn from the errors of the past and not get smug, not get, I know the answer. This is, this is X, Y, and Z. It's not A, B, and C. That one over there as well. We don't know. We don't know very much about this is very much in the emerging. Well, we can have 
our arguments about how many angels can dance on the head of a pin and whether the little green creatures mean us well or harm. But we're just guessing like crazy. We're in way over our heads here, which is what part of the thrill. And it's interesting because we only had really about 75 years now since Roswell happened. And it's sort of, sort of new for us too. We're still figuring out what this whole thing is. But what's interesting is that it's now moved over to Congress. Now, Congress is now interested in UAPs. We got the government, military. So this is is quite interesting in a sense because it's not just, you know, maybe an idealism that's forming within ufology, but you also have the military looking into it, the government looking into it. Uh, Is that similar to what happened in the past when religion used to seep into the government? Like, do you think there's a similarity there? Yeah, I'm smiling because um, I'm... you know, it was a little bit of a lefty in college. I, I don't have a lot of respect for how the government does things. I, I and pe- people that come along and say, "Well, this whole thing is it's a conspiracy to keep this quiet from us." And I'm thinking, our government is keeping this thing. That bunch of Keystone cops they they they're keeping this big secret. I don't think so. I don't. I just don't think they do that good. They're, I don't. I don't have that much respect for their work. Yeah. Um, yeah. Once in a while, they pull something good off. They got us to the moon, but. Uh, yeah, it is kind of interesting that it's getting a little bit of respect and that in intellectual history, there's a model that, first of all, oh, no, what this new idea, complete nonsense. You, you guys are stupid or crazy. No way. And then then more evidence is presented and now you're completely raving mad. And then more evidence is presented. And then the, the, the third stage is, oh, yeah, of course, we always said that. Yeah, right. It's always well, been like that. It's always and, and we and we said it first. I mean, you, all of a sudden, there's a pivot moment when instead of it being foolishness, it's 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 common knowledge. Oh, cool. you're just talking about what everybody knows, right? Well, but yesterday you told it called us crazy. What? I don't remember that. Yeah. How can they admit that they've had this info all along and have ruined people's careers and all the rest? They're just going to let disclosure kind of happen and then go along the the train with everybody else. Like, oh yeah, we we always knew too, or be just as surprised as everyone else. Wow, we didn't see that coming. You know, they have to save face somehow because of the yeah. implication <laughs> behind what it would mean if they really did know and didn't say anything. We wouldn't trust them ever again. That's right. Yeah, yeah, a, a, a wily crew, if you ever found one. Uh, I like the theory that uh, some people who know more about all this uh, are carefully sneaking out information in the form of highly speculative movies. Yeah. And so the real information is in is in the movies. Um, I, actually, I, I'm smiling because I, I don't, think that literally i do think that in a in a kind of psychological sense that it's not just that the government are unwilling to admit things it's that the culture is not quite ready for it we're getting ready it's it's rolling out it's beginning to be acknowledged and and what it i'm referring to isn't specifically uap it's that there's more than we know it's more than western civilization has acknowledged there are a whole bunch of loose ends and, and, and we need to get humble and start studying some things that we put off the table way, way too long. Um, so, so it's interesting the way we carefully proceed. First of all, the artists get a hold of it. And they are, our great artists now are the well-paid artists, the make, makers of movies, because the money is there. And so the, the, like the Medici, um, what would have been romantic poets in another era, they're screenwriters today. And they tend, and Joseph Campbell noted that the artists are like um, 
like the canaries in mines, they're, they're more sensitive than others. They will be aware of things that others would miss and it will get into their poetry and their painting and their movies. It will, it will, it will roll out in fictional form before the culture can handle it in scientific reports. Hmm. So hey. um, keep watching the movies. And your shows and the shows that you're on. Yeah. They're educative. <laughs> where can people, uh, where can people follow you or get more uh, information on you and your career and what uh, you've gotten to go? Yeah. The kind of things I've, I've written about, I, I post virtually all of my uh, articles on my website, which is folkstory.com or just uh, you know, um, Google my name, Jonathan Young and, and ancient aliens or something, and you'll, you'll get to it. Um, but folkstory.com, and I've got uh, links to some uh, free lectures and things on YouTube and th that kind of thing. Um, the ideas I'm mainly interested in are, are how movies are leading our culture to new possibilities. Uh, psychologically, I think we have this powerful visual form of communication that is doing more than just entertain us. I think it is, enlightening is not intentionally although actually when when they made 2001 the filmmakers very intentionally brought some very advanced philosophical ideas and they told the studio oh it's a it's kind of a a space adventure you know it'll sell a lot of tickets and so they said they unintentionally made a profoundly religious movie for a, multi, a huge budget which did very well, but the filmmakers were being tricksters. They were they were purposely sneaking an idea that the studio, if they knew what they were doing, would not have put that kind of money into. And it had a profound effect on our sense of ourselves because while we're discovering otherness and other kind, whether they are little green or tall silver or, or heptopods, we're discovering our own um, limits we're discovering our own vulnerability. We're discovering a lot about our yearning to know something that is just beyond ordinary thinking. So this is a mirror, a psychological mirror to humanity. The whole UAP UFO thing is about us going through a huge change. It actually goes back a little before Roswell. There were 1890s. There were some dirigible-like sightings and things. And then, we, and you know, as in the show, we can go back much earlier and say, yeah, well, what about this 3,000 years ago? We've got a little clue here. But in the modern era, it really in the 1800s, things started and then picked up speed in the 40s. Uh, something new, or at least a new form of, of enlightenment from above is happening. Or like rediscovery, or rediscovering something that we've lost, right? That's a very good point. Yeah, that, that, we, that we do lose so much that usually when something is new, it's actually something we didn't follow up on long ago. That's a good point. Perfect. Jonathan, thank you so much for joining us on UAP Studies. We've we had a blast. We hope you can come Good back and, and, and have another uh, another go at this because I think we can talk for hours on this subject for sure. Great fun. You guys are doing a great work. Keep up the uh, keep up the shows.